Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we talk about new breakthroughs in medicine and agriculture that really are centered around biotechnology and its applications. In today's episode, really excited to be able to talk to one of the pioneers and one of the folks who was there at the beginning when we were doing plant transformation. And I'm very excited to be here sitting with Dr. Ray Shillido, uh, currently working with the Bayer Corporation. And he was on deck with Jeff Shell and other early laboratories during the first days of plant transformation. So welcome very much to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. So before we get started, could you really just let us, give us a sense of what it was like at that time? Why were so many laboratories excited about the idea of plant transformation, either using agrobacterium or other methods? At the time, we had, uh, I would say in the around 1980, 81, around that time, there'd already been some work in agrobacterium, quite a lot of work in agrobacterium uh, in various labs, understanding how agrobacterium works. As a result of that, people were then trying to engineer it. And the real breakthroughs started to come through in 82, 83 with agrobacterium. And at the same time, our group was working on not using agrobacterium because there was a, a fair number of studies that said that claimed to have transferred DNA into plant cells, but they didn't really have the proof. And so we were following up on that. So we had a, a pretty global situation. We had people in the US, so the, the trio at Monsanto. We had Meridel Chilton, we had Jeff Shell and Montague. And then we had Shilprot, who I'd studied with previously in Holland. And so all these things started to come together. So if you could tell me a little bit about some of the different personalities at the time. Uh, you mentioned Mary Del Chilton and uh, Jeff Schell, and, and you were working with Ingo Patricus in Basel. Give us a little hint about, you know, what was it like back then? Was, was there a lot of uh, contention, competition between the different groups, or were things a little bit collaborative? I would say it was a friendly rivalry. I mean, it was, I would say 
Ingo's group that I was working with, he built a group to work on Protoplus. We were sort of the outlier, and the Agrobacterium teams were all competing with each other. We were maybe the outlier of the quiet group on the side that they weren't really thinking about maybe so much. Um, so that's we were we were working parallel to them, but just taking a different line. So it was interesting to watch that, um, especially at the end of beginning of 1983, when the first engineered you know agrobacterium were used to, to to put DNA into plants in controlled ways, and we were at the time working on putting it without. So it was we were watching that, but we weren't sort of central to that whole uh, game that was going on. And the, uh, I guess in, when you look at the game and the, the, what was happening at the time, I was watching this as a high school student, you know, and I was seeing the, the, what was happening and how this was coming together. And it was really interesting to see uh, this time in biology where we're actually really en engineering a cross-kingdom transfer of genetic material to install traits of interest. When, when you're taking this way without agrobacterium, what was the real value in that in terms of like why why would you take the different path other than uh, you know it was the it was a separate course but what were the the perceived advantages did it seem like there would be a regulatory issues or anything around the agrobacterium as a pathogen anything like that or was it strictly because you wanted to move just the most pure form of the gene I think it'd be the latter um, it's it's interesting you say just beginning to move things across kingdoms. I mean, Agrobacterium has been doing that forever. <laughs> so we mustn't forget that, especially in today's uh, environment. So what we were trying to do were, was really to, as you say, take the pure line and just put the gene, the promoter, and the terminator in. That was it. Obviously, we needed to put that in on the plasmid and, and do things like that. But I think it was, an, as you say, the game, I say it's, I'd say it, in that way, I think it was a rivalry. Everybody knew each other. Everybody was watching what everybody was doing. So it wasn't that we weren't aware of each other. It wasn't rivalry. There was there was a friendly rivalry to be there, and you could see that at the at the meeting in uh, early, uh, I think January 1983, the meeting where all this started to come out. I think our our approach was different. It's just because we were interested in protoplus and what we could do with that, and we. There'd been a fair amount of work about, with Agrobacterium and Protoplus, or regenerating Protoplus. In fact, we were using that as a model system uh, to test what we were doing, to make sure the genes worked, etc. And then we we were successful in doing it without that step, I would say. But we were really building on what other people had done in Protoplus as well. So it wasn't just anything was coming out. Everything, everybody builds on what everybody else does, and it's it's not just a one-person thing. Yeah. That that's a real common theme here. You know, we always talk about standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, and, and I think yeah. it really is something that we, we hit on all the time. But our audience is, is uh, really a kind of a mixed bag and is growing into more people who are just interested in science. And maybe a few folks might miss this idea of protoplasts. And if you could just spend a minute talking about, you know, why did you use protoplasts and what is a protoplast? <laughs> what is a protoplast? How do you make one? And uh, what is the advantage of using a protoplast over other types of transformation? If you look at the... So if you look at, at plant cells, they are... They're all encased in a very hard or very stiff uh, cell wall. And that is, that's why trees stand up and don't fall down, basically. Uh, so plants are 
have a structure which within the and the cells live within that structure, and those cells, you know, we'd looked at what had been done in animals animal systems where you can separate those cells out and grow them separately, and they're you know, very malleable. And so, if you look at animal at the plant cells, we were able to digest off that hard cell wall, and we end up with a plant cell, which is basically like a little bubble. And you have to then you have to protect it by putting um, buffers in there and, and something to keep it from bursting. But basically, it's just a, a bubble with all the genetic information inside and what have you. And it's fully able in many plants to form a whole plant again. So what's really exciting about plants is you can go from a single cell to a whole plant. We then took those protoplasts, as we called them, and we were able to then treat them. And what we did was to put, and this was not totally new, obviously, but what we were able to do was to put a, uh, it's polyethylene glycol, so it's a well-known substance. But what that does is that sticks to the, the membrane and allows the DNA then to move across the membrane. And this then allows that DNA to get inside the cell. Now, what it does when it gets there is a good question. And so then you had to have some way of identifying those cells that taking it up and, and we were able to do that and make it work, building on what else was known. And that's what's really interesting is how, you know, once it gets in, you know, how does it, you know, when we talk about agrobacterium, we know exactly how, or pretty much exactly how, how, how a, uh, how, how, um, how, how the, how the DNA is treated and coated with proteins and moved around the cell. Uh, when just naked DNA goes in, it's almost like the cell says, wait a minute, here's some DNA out here floating around. This belongs in here. <laughs> and, you know, somehow gets it in the, yes, it's sort of. I, I, and um, so that's kind of how that, how, at least for the listeners who don't know this process, you can use naked DNA either with, um, uh, peg-induced um, yeah. move forcing into the protoplast or um, other or electroporation where you kind of shock the, the protoplast and they take up a little bit of the stuff around them or even um, uh, people using biolistics with protoplast? No, you couldn't use biolistics with protoplast. It would blow them to pieces. <laughs> so, <laughs> so biolistics is, is really used with whole tissues and um, I also worked with that later. So it's interesting. I think there's a and I, it's been a long time since I've studied this. It seems that the integration of DNA is part of the repair mechanisms of the cell, and they just you know, put it in willy-nilly. But it's very interesting, because if you put two pieces of DNA into a cell at the same time, we did this back in 84, there's a very high frequency, even though those two were not connected, that they go in the same place. So there's obviously some kind of repair mechanism going on that opens up a particular site, and the DNA that's around gets in it. And we're talking about efficiencies that are very high, much higher than in animal cells. So plants are different. And they, you know, they, they do that for some reason. I, um, it was very interesting that that happened. We had a graduate student. Actually, a, no, it was a... We had an undergraduate student that did that. It was a nice project. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. And it, are you going to do the thing where, like, the Paul Harvey uh, were... And he, that, and he would grow up to be. <laughs> I don't know where he went. <laughs> Craig Venter, you know, <laughs> good day. Um, so the other interesting thing about this, and that's a really interesting thing, I never knew that. And so it really says that there must be mechanisms that are present that are surveilling DNA or cells for exogenous DNA and incorporating, and we know prokaryotes do this all the time, and you know, well throughout all this, throughout all this time, you know, all these different 
discoveries and all the fundamental things that are happening in biology, it really isn't just an island. I mean, you're, you're working with a team of people who are doing a lot of the, uh, they're lending their expertise and time to these types of projects. What was it like to be part of uh, one of those teams at that time? It was pretty invigorating. I still look back to it as one of the best of my times. Um, Ingo Potikas had put together a team, so Yurik uh, Paskowski, who interestingly, he was a um, he was stateless almost for a moment, for a while there. He was Polish, and he uh, was, came out of Poland around the Solidarność time. And so it was doubtful for a while, you know, what is, uh, he couldn't travel very much. And then we had another guy called Mike Saul, who later went back to England. So when the team broke up in 86, 87, uh, some of them went to Zurich with Ingo, so Yurik did. I went to the U.S. a little earlier than that. Mike Saul went back to England and had a, a long career teaching in, uh, in Huddersfield and is now retired. So it's, but I still think back to those days, and there were a few other people that came in and out of that group. I still think back to those days as a time of when we could really challenge each other in a really good way, in the way that scientists can, if they respect each other. And that really helped the research. And I've found that teamwork like that, and since then, you can't buy that. You can develop it, and it's, it's special. Well, one of the things we were speaking of yesterday was about the workshops that you do and ways that we can help scientists be uh, better at what we do in terms of our um, uh, presentation skills. And what, what are some of the pieces of advice that you would offer today uh, for scientists? I had a symposium this fall at serial chemist meeting, and it was amazing to watch the professionalism and skill of those presenters. They all did a phenomenal job. What they did is I didn't see slides full of words. I saw lots of really nice illustrations of what they were doing, and they talked about it. And so one of the things I've been doing myself and, and trying to get other people to do is, is work on presentation skills. There's a couple of ways we do that. One is uh, I'm actually a member of Toastmasters, so that's one area where you you can use that as a, as a way of increasing your, improving, I would say, improving your presentation skills. The other way is we had a, uh, a presenter come back, come into Bayer, and we, we did a, a couple of workshops, reached maybe over 200 of our staff, to, sh to teach people that they're basically in prison with that PowerPoint template. That PowerPoint template comes from the 1970s. It was never meant to be a long-term way of doing presentations. It was just thrown together. And it was never expected to take off. And then Microsoft picked it up, and oh, there you go. Now we have it. And what she, So that one of her messages, and this is a, a lady called Melissa Marshall, one of her messages is, you know, we're, we're basically stuck with that thing. And we, we end up just using the template. And it's not a good way to go. There's a couple of things I want to repeat that really struck me about her stuff. One is the use of pictures because pictures go into your mind in a different way than words. So there's two streams pictures and words. If you have words on the screen and you're talking, you can't listen and look at the same time. That's one of the tenets, I would say. The second one is a lot of scientists go deep dive into their data and stay there. And they never come up for air. And the problem is the people in the audience who don't do that deep dive with them or can't do that deep dive, they run out of oxygen. 
uh, something I sent to my presenters before that meeting was, you know, start with something that's common to everybody, do the little bit of deep dive for the guys who want the data, come up for air, allow the audience to come up for air, and then go back down again. And you do that three or four times during your talk. If you can do that, you can keep the audience, all of the audience engaged, and not just a few. That's uh, really great advice, and the place where I see this, so we can think about TED Talks, yeah. which you know, which really are, the focus is on the speaker with slides that reinforce and images that reinforce. And the place where I see it go wrong is with uh, postdocs who are interviewing for jobs. That they go to do their job talk at a university, and their first response is, i got to bury everybody in data and show them how good I am. And I've coached so many postdocs. And, and, and it's kind of sad because a lot of the folks, a lot of the postdocs in the medical school or other places, they're, they're coached by people who are saying, you know, blow them away with the data. And what was really um, apparent was we had all these postdocs, especially in our medical school, who were getting six interviews, ten interviews, because they're good scientists. They have great publication records, but they're not getting the job. And I sat down, I, I sit with them. I, there's a couple that I've done now where they'll, they'll go in and start right into the deep dive of the of the bowels of their data and, uh, and, you know, and the question be answered. And this is for, and I'll say, what position are you going for? You know, they go into like these intricacies of neurotransmission and, you know, the molecules involved. And they'll say, oh yeah, well this is for um, electrobiology at Marshall College, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, they're trying to give this talk which is designed to, to like speak to eight people in their field at a very high level and and they, they they blow it and so your advice is perfectly you know well taken what are some other things that scientists can do better you know maybe not just in presentation with each other but maybe as we approach the public interface uh, in the public area we're dealing with in the public area we're dealing with the public with people who are less and less scientifically knowledgeable and so we come back to that thing I said about the giving a talk you have to start at their level the other thing you have to do, you have to acknowledge their concerns. If you don't acknowledge their concerns, they're going to blow you off. As a scientist, it's very difficult when you're used to dealing, you know, and I, I go back again to these days, way back when we used to fight out, you know, what experiments we're going to do in a, on a whiteboard. You can't do that. You really have to start from a position of respect, and then you have to understand what their concerns are and work on those. And I think a lot of scientists don't do that, and I know I have difficulty with that as well. So it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough thing to do. Yeah, it certainly is a challenge, and it's one of these things that, that the way that I started thinking about it was, and in my whole story was that I started feeling like I could change the world if I just took this big bag of science that I had and, that, you know, and these letters after my name, and started to talk to people who didn't understand issues, especially in the area of genetic engineering, where so much bad information is present. And I used to go in there and just beat them to death with data. And I draw pictures of, of binary vectors on the board. And, and this is in front of a you know group of moms. <laughs> and, and they thought, what a jerk, you know. And really, what um, when it changed for me was when I started to understand it's not about it's not about how, it's about why. And if you can share the concerns, share the values, show that we're basically on the same team, and I just have a neat toolbox to solve those questions. And that's, uh, that's one of the things that I learned that really helped me be a better communicator in science space. So that was my example. Do you have an example from when uh, you had a very positive interaction from using this kind of strategy? Well, I deal more with scientific audiences, or, but it's still that don't know in my field. 
I, I think back to when I, when, actually when my daughter was in high school and I was invited to talk to the science club about biotechnology. This was quite a few years ago. So what I did was instead of focusing on the biotechnology, I focused on what's the effect on the environment. What, what's the neat things you can do with this? What's the fun things? And I never even talked about a plasmid. So, right. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's something that sticks with me as something that I enjoyed a lot too. And I think we need to get out and talk to those high schoolers because they're the, they're the citizens of the future. No, very true. And, and uh, it, it's, it is fun to talk to high schoolers too because I think I see a difference between the students that come into college today versus the ones that came in five years ago or definitely ten years ago, that they really are much more values-driven. That I think a lot of students do see much more interest in uh, making a difference, how they can contribute, which I think is a real difference from a few years ago when people were um, much more in for themselves maybe. And, all right, so, so maybe one last question. Why did you start doing this, and why do you still do this? As a teenager, I was interested in, in gardening, did a lot of gardening. When I came to look for college, I was interested in biochemistry for some unknown reason. I can't remember. And so I went and did a degree in biochemistry, which is, by the way, as a biochemist, that's the best grounding you can have, just a plug. Anyway, so then I got partly through that and said, where am I going next? And I'd heard about this strange thing called tissue culture where you can take plant cells and grow whole plants from them. And so I got into tissue culture. Tissue culture then led me into uh, the lab of Herbert Street in Leicester, who was one of the all-time tissue culture guys, by the way. And then he said, there's this stuff going on where people are you know, putting genes into, into plants. And so that's how I ended up in, in the Netherlands with Shilprot. And then I got another grant to go to um, Ingo Potricus' lab. And it was a, that was basically just enjoying working with science and, and doing stuff, you know, interesting stuff. I think once I got into the U.S. and I was working on maize and crop plants, and then I started to feel that this is a technology that can make a difference and that we can do really neat stuff for the agriculture area. I would say that's developed over the years. I still believe that. I still believe it's a, a phenomenal. Um, I still believe it's a phenomenal technology that can really help in agriculture. And over the years, I've become more convinced rather than less convinced of that. And that's why I'm still involved. And maybe one last question along that line is: you know, you see where we are now. We're at kind of a funny precipice where we have so much pushback against the technology in some ways in certain places, but other places which are really welcoming the technology and looking for more. And where do you think we're going to be, say, in 10 years? Oh, wow, if I knew where I was going to be in 10 years. I think we're starting to see one of the really exciting things is we're starting to see the takeoff of this technology in Africa. And that's something that's been, I would say, has been a, a sad consequence of the pushback from the first world people to say the people who don't worry about where the next meal's coming from. I've done workshops all over the world. I've traveled over the last 10, 15 years into many countries doing workshops of various types. And a lot of the time, what we see, or what I've seen in the past, is I've seen really exciting agricultural advances, you might say, sitting on the shelf, 
not been able to be used. And I'm hoping that some of those will come off the shelf. Uh, you know, I think about the, uh, the high-protein sweet potatoes from Tuskegee University. I think about the fungus-resistant rice in Korea. I think about, you know, all these different things. And I'm starting to see some of that happen. And so I have a lot of hope that that's going to continue. But until we fix the regulatory system, I'm not sure how much we can do with Europe and some other countries. Well, very good. Well, thank you. It's an excellent note to end on, an optimistic, forward-thinking note. But thank you very much for visiting with me, Ray. And, uh, so I'm here with Ray Shillito. We're actually in Denver, Colorado, <laughs> in, a, in a noisy hotel lobby. And I don't know if we should have said that in the beginning, but people could probably figure out we we're in an airport or a, <laughs> a factory or something. But uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and thank you very much for listening. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening to the podcast. In episode 118, we tried something new. First, live streaming the podcast on Facebook Live while recording the final product for the podcast. This all goes live on January 20th, with the live stream already online. I talked about pet vaccination and pet food with two outstanding veterinarians, and it was a great conversation. The advantage of doing it live is that we can take questions in real time. And the next live stream will be on January 7, 2018 from the American Farm Bureau meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, I don't know the topic, I don't know the guest, but there's many notables at this meeting and it promises to be a lot of fun. So watch the Talking Biotech Twitter feed and watch my professional Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash kmfolta on January 6th. Details will be provided at that time. It's really a lot of fun to field the questions on the fly. And it's great to enjoy another level of active engagement with this audience. It's another way to say thank you and add another new dimension as this audience continues to grow. Now back to the podcast. And on this part of the Talking Biotech podcast, we'll do something a little different. Uh, one of the things that I've been excited to do in the last few years is to promote science communication, especially the involvement of other people in that space. And I was excited to hear about a graduate student here at the University of Florida who started a podcast along with a faculty member. So I'm sitting here with Angie Adkin. Uh, Angie, so you're a master, you're a PhD student now. But yes. You're the- Officially a candidate, so that's a very exciting step in the long, uh, tenuous journey of being a PhD student. Yeah, so not, maybe now you'll be elected. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> we can only hope, right? Play your least, cards right. At right? least elected to listen to the pod, the new podcast, right? <laughs> well, this is really great. I'm really excited that you're in this space and that you're doing this because I think such moves really can define you and your next steps. Yes, yeah. I would agree with that. I wanted to take the plunge and explore new opportunities opportunities. I've had a lot of experience with informal education growing up in 4-H and then of course I worked in the zoo field for a while and then here at the university a lot of formal education as far as being a TA and a lot of teaching on under my wings but this is a new space and I wanted to kind of dive in and feel out the areas of new technology and how to accept be able to access more people. Good. And you have some ag cred in your background, right? Oh, yes. Born and raised. Um, I'm a farmer's daughter up in southwest Michigan. Uh, we grow about 600 acres of blueberries. 
Okay, so this is uh, so you you speak from authority, not only as someone <laughs> boots on the ground, but also with a good theoretical training. And absolutely, is- yeah, I know a lot of farmers and I grew up with them, and then now I've been in the ag and the science world for the past seven years, and have a lot of love for animals agriculture and science. Okay, so let's talk about your podcast. Mm-hmm. What is your podcast called? Okay, Dr. Fulta, our fo- our podcast is called All Creatures Podcast. All Creatures Podcast. And you do this with a uh, faculty member. Dr. Chris Mortensen, he's been my advisor for the past seven years. Uh, I worked with him in my master's program and then now currently in my PhD. But he recently just uh, <laughs> is leaving with his family, his wife and his two beautiful boys, to New Zealand. They're starting a new adventure over there, and so he, they're relocating. And he leaves me here to hopefully finish up this semester, and of course we'll still be partace, participating in my defense and my graduation. Well, that sounds good, but it's good you'll still be able to do the podcast with him, right? Absolutely, yes, yes. We both share a love of education and animals and conservation, so this is a perfect way to stay connected and continue the message and reaching out to people. I've seen your website, and it's super impressive. Uh, what are some of the episodes that you've done, and why would fans of any particular podcast find interest in your media? Our mission at All Creatures Podcast is to educate the listeners on the many diverse animals. We don't do just mammals. Our goal is to do uh, insects and reptiles. So I think for anybody, if you like animals or science, uh, this would be a great podcast. Our audience, it, we target a little bit more towards a adults or young adults, but really any listener would enjoy it. In fact, um, my co-host, Dr. Chris Mortensen, his six-year-old son loves it. I really, if you like animals and you're curious about the species that we're targeting that week, I really think that you would enjoy it. Okay, that sounds good. So what was the motivation to start a podcast? Right. Why why start this? Why why do this? Well, first, if you know me, you know that I love to talk. Um, And then secondly, I do love animals and, of course, science. And I have a lot of science training now these past seven years. So the podcast was like a a perfect match. But on a more serious note, I really do believe that knowledge and education is power. And together, I think we can make a difference. And so when Dr. Mortensen suggested this, I hopped on board, definitely. Uh, I wanted to be a part of making waves and and doing things a little different and reaching out to as many people as possible. If you think about animals and their behavior and physiology, people are always really drawn to them. I mean, think of the the YouTube videos of cats. People love them. People love (laughs) animals, right? Sure. So we found animals are a great gateway to getting people to get excited about science. And, And so I think this platform will help make it more accessible to people and hopefully get them excited about science and animals and conservation. Well, it's, it ties in with um, the next couple questions really tie in with my motivation to have you aboard here. Okay. Um, one of them is to promote what you do and uh, to talk about why it's important. But at the same time, I would like more people to take that same step. Okay. I think creating more media and putting more expertise in an accessible format is something we all can do and be better communicators, especially at universities. So how difficult was it to get started? Well, Dr. Fulta, making a podcast, I think, is really easy. In this day and age, if you have a laptop and maybe even a microphone, you can do it. However, the difficulty, I think, is making a good podcast that people want to listen to. 
I'm still working on it. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Abs- I mean, I think it's, it's, it's just like science in general, education, there's always room for growth. There's always room for critiques and whatnot. And a lot of study, a lot of information out there shows that most podcasts stop after seven episodes mm-hmm. because people realize it's just too much work or not worth it or it doesn't sound good. So I'm very blessed that my co-host Chris has done a great job in researching what makes a podcast successful, what tools to use, how to make a good sound, and then the most important part is connecting with the audience, of course, uh, making it fun and enter- entertaining, but also educating and, ex- and exciting. And just like you said, that takes time, and, and we're still in the learning in the learning process. And for the past ten episodes that Chris and I have done, I think we've gotten more comfortable with each other and learned how to feed off of each other and make make it a positive and and fun and an engaging experience for our audience. But the other difficulty, I think, and maybe you can even help me, help me with this on the side here, is getting the podcast out and exposed to the public. It's it's hard. There, there's no commercials or or TV ads to say, "Hey guys, come check this out." So. I've found that besides promoting it with like family and friends, it's it's a little difficult to get the word word out there. But we're working on it. We're putting our minds together and researching ways to do that. And of course, our goal, our long term goal, goal is to collaborate with more science scientists and conservationists and Sioux specialists, and perhaps having more interviews and just getting the word out there. Yeah, that's really all it takes. And the, the thing that's nice about it is that you create a durable good. So even if you're doing episode two or three and you have a few dozen people listening, that's cool. Right. Because it doesn't go away. Yeah. So when you're up to episode 120, then people can go back and say, wow, this used to really, like, well, with mine, they go back, gosh, this was horribly unprofessional. And it's gotten less unprofessional. Still isn't so hot, but it's getting there. Yeah. And, so, and I've learned to get used to my own voice and when I'm re-listening back yeah, back no. to and trying to get better but it's still not pretty <laughs> no I'm in the same boat <laughs> I still cringe sometimes when I when I hear my own voice but no, I, yeah some of us just weren't blessed with the best pipes and that's the <laughs> but you know that's the way it goes mm-hmm. <laughs> so do, do you just so far you've done uh, 10 episodes mm-hmm. but is it really worth it to you do you think that this is something that has given you um, some personal satisfaction, as well as elevated your credentials as a scientist a bit? Oh, yes, Dr. Folta. I really, I thought deeply about this one before, and it really is worth it. First and foremost, for my own self, I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, for a PhD program, you usually specialize in one really narrow focus, and so mine is about six molecules. So to be able <laughs> to be able to open up the literature and learn about a new species each week, I'm really honestly falling back in love with physiology and behavior. I mean, animals do some, and well, you know this, and plants do some really weird but cool physiological things. So it's fun to share these factoids with the listeners and perhaps excite the public about animals in general. Although a lot of our animals we feature each week are endangered or they have their populations decreasing, it really is amazing and inspirational to discover how hard people and scientists and zoo specialists and conservationists and even government internationally are working to help save these guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of feel-good stories out there, so I like sharing that. And then lastly, I think that it's definitely worth it for like my kids, my grandkids, your kids, grandkids, because 
we are going to really need to work together if we want to see rhinos and elephants and the California condor and the black-footed ferret in the next you know, 10 to 20 to 100 years. I really hope that we can inspire my kids and other kids to, to be able to see these guys in the wild and to want to learn about them. And if I'm a big believer that if we inspire one person, my, my job is done. And that's, very, and that's a very you know, satisfying feeling because I, you never know who's going to be like the next Jane Goodall or Temple Grandin. Right. And if I can reach out to a person, an adult or a child and inspire that and get them motivated, then job well done. I have goosebumps right now, you know? So (laughs) I think that's the long-term goal, but the days in and day outs can be, you know, can definitely be difficult, but I'm not going to give up yet. Well, this is the fun part for folks in your career trajectory. Mm -hmm. Like me too, is that, you know, there's ways that you can, when you share your passion in the traditional scientific sense, it's how you uh, train students. It's how you talk about your work, how Mm -hmm. you share it in the scientific literature. And there's never a place where you can uh, just let 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 it fly, and really just say, "Here are the things I really care about." Exactly, and it never comes out in our scientific discourse. Mm-mm. And I don't know that scientists and that they realize how bottlenecked they are in because sharing our science, you know, it's great to share it with a dozen other eggheads in a scientific journal, but there's a passion to why we do it. There's implications to why we do what we do, and. It resonates with people if we can have these kinds of conversations. Absolutely. And I've, for me, I've had to let go a little bit of, um, in as a trained scientist, in a lot of these talks and discussions that I give, there's a lot of critique or for writing articles. And I'm used to that and defending my, my work and my, and my research. And so when I'm working on a podcast, it's hard for me to not have it maybe not be perfect. And I have to learn to let go of that and think that the, the information out there is good and it's only going to be getting better as far as the podcast goes. And I love people's feedback. And there is going to be critiques, and I, I like I like that as a trained scientist. So a lot of it's just a little bit changing my thinking and then learning how to reach target audiences because it is a different style of educating. And then a long-term goal for, for me and uh, for All Creatures Podcast would to be to create specific podcasts with a target audience of younger children. Because right now we do a good job for the general audience, PG, yeah. rated, uh, adult, young adult. But uh, when I'm trying to talk to my son, I, there's a specific way to do it, and that's where I'll be reaching out to educators to learn how do I, how do I even get smoother with relaying scientific information so that everybody can understand all different ages can understand and get excited about it so that would be a long-term goal and it seems easy but chris and i have tried it and it's not like it was that was the hardest (laughs) one yeah we were so we were just like okay let's scratch that and focus on our target audience now and then hopefully in the future we can come back with all creatures podcasts for for kids or for a certain for young like the toddlers that's a really good idea and i think that the the other big part of it about doing this is it takes practice. Oh yes, and that's all it is, though. It's like anything else. It's like well, it's like me with my pipetting skills. And, right. You know, I was a nightmare in the lab the first year. You sure. know, broke a centrifuge. Sure. You know, <laughs> whatnot. But now I'm knock on wood a little smoother, and and it's just doing it over and over, and and so that's the goal is yeah. to to not give up and just get better, and hopefully the audience will stick with us and they'll grow. And we've had some really positive feedback 
which I'm not sure about you, but that really feeds yeah, it does. feeds the energy and makes me know that this hobby is uh, is worth it and a oh, lot of fun. The feedback I get is when I don't put it up on time. So people are used <laughs> to it coming on, you know, early in the morning on Saturday, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't happen. I get the, well, what am I going to do this week when I walk the dog? Or how do I dr- do my drive without listening to your nasally drone? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One, one of a, a friend of a friend had told me, I, I run to this every week. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's different. <laughs> but good for them. Like, I should I should try that as my New Year's resolution. But, no, it is it is nice when you have that. And, and there is a lot of information out there that one of the biggest things for podcasts to be successful is consistency yes so that's our goal to work on that we we release a new episode every tuesday and then twice a month we try to release on thursdays a special interview with a guest of choice that's in the animal world animal science or zoology or conservation out there in the field doing really good work so we can highlight them and let the listeners know more what's going on besides just Chris and I babbling on. How did you get started and what is the advice to someone who says, I really care about needlepoint or marathons or rhinoceroses? What is their first step and and how would they go about that? That's a great question. I think we live in the information age. There are a lot of resources we found online in general. Uh, about how to get started and what worked for other people, from what microphones to use, from what platforms to put your media on. and But then I think also if you can collaborate with somebody else and maybe bounce ideas off of each other. For Chris and I, that worked really well. We have known each other for seven years too, so we're kind of, we're old friends, so there is a lot of banter along the way, which I think makes it a little more fun for the listeners. So that was nice too, of getting ideas. But then just feedback. Before we launched this, probably for about four months, we talked to people on, well, what do you think you would like? And then, and what wouldn't you like? And we also uh, listen to a lot of podcasts ourselves. So that's very helpful too. If you can, what, what do you like? Honestly, Dr. Folta, my most favorite pot, it's not pot, it's not a podcast, but a radio episode out there is Car Talk (laughs) on NPR. I don't care a lick about cars. Sorry to anybody who, my dad probably thought I liked cars. I don't really care about cars, and I definitely don't know much about fixing them. But I love the show Car Talk because the two hosts were so passionate about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that to answer your question in a nutshell, having that passion and that excitement about needlepoint or rhinos or marathons or cars, (laughs) if you do it well, it it comes across, and, and and then listeners can learn from it. And then it gets them excited. So, yeah, if it's about Needlepoint and, and the hosts are exciting, <laughs> I would honestly probably listen to that. That's one skill set I don't have. So if there is one out there, that, huh. if somebody can teach me in a couple episodes how to Needlepoint and, and keep me excited about it, I would love okay. that. Well, that was a hypothetical I threw out there that <laughs> probably is a bridge too far. But, uh, if we wanted to find your podcast, where would we look? Easy peasy. Just um, on Google All Creatures Podcast. And we're, we have a nice website up there, but we can also be found on Facebook at All Creatures Pod and on Twitter. And then, of course, on, we're on iTunes, too. So there's lots of different platforms. If you would like to check us out, we'd really appreciate that. Okay, so that's really great. So we're speaking with Angie Adkin, a uh, University of Florida PhD candidate. And thank you very much for coming by and talking to me. Oh, thank you, Dr. Folta. It was very nice. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes 
and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.